Well, imagine, if you will, that some good friends of yours are about to have a baby, and they come to you for advice. Now, you're no Ward or June Cleaver. You youngins know what I'm talking about there? Leave it to Beaver. But you've been around long enough to pass along a bit of wisdom. Would your advice sound something like this? Hey, thanks for asking. You know, there's a lot to parenting. But if you will make sure to simply give them good information their whole lives, that'll pretty much cover it. Nothing else is really important other than good information. What do you think? Is constantly dispensing good information going to make you a model parent and them a model child? Of course not. So maybe your advice might sound something like this. Basically, you know, the key to parenting is to shower that child with continuous affection. Really forget any kind of instruction, any kind of wisdom. Just love on them. Encourage them, whatever direction they want to go. That's what will make you a great parent. Well, no one with any sense of good parenting would be so imbalanced. The fact is, is that these little ones that God has placed in our care, well, they do need instruction, amen? They do need wisdom, uh, but they also need affection. You see, w- w- without affection, then uh, there's no love. There's no relationship. And without instruction, well, we run, we run the risk of simply affirming their sin. I mean, can you imagine having a leave it to beaver without an instructional ward cleaver? Or without an affectionate June cleaver? I mean, it just, the the whole single parent model, it just doesn't work. No, no. Parenting. Parenting is an art. And it must be balanced with both instruction and affection. It's it's direction that is is wrapped in a relationship. As as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it's speaking the truth in love. Both are required. And the same is true with spiritual parenting. Unfortunately, though, the church seems to have an imbalanced view of this today. An imbalanced view of helping people grow spiritually. Either we equate love with an expression of affection and call it discipleship without any instruction, or or we, we simply back up the theological dump truck and dispense the chapter breaks of Romans and systematic theology and say, okay, check, I've done my Great Commission work. No, the fact is, is that both are needed, especially in spiritual parenting. Think about how our concepts of spiritual parenting, our concepts of, of discipleship, are so grossly off today, even by these statements that are, that are just part of who we are, part of our culture. Listen to this, these modern-day statements. Uh, discipleship is it's really committed Christianity where you teach so in theology. I would say most Christians would say, yes, that's what it is. And the Bible would say, no. 
Counseling, well, that's where a licensed professional helps to fix someone's emotional problems. Pastoring, well, that's something Rod was hired to do. Probably involves preaching in a hospital visit. Doesn't really impact me. Shepherding, well, since I don't own any sheep, I have no clue what that means. But do you realize that biblically, discipleship, counseling, pastoring, shepherding are interchangeable terms that all Christians are called to do. It's called spiritual parenting. It's called making disciples. And unless you're a brand spanking new believer, we are each one called to be involved in one another's lives in helping to rear Christians towards maturity with both instruction and affection in relationship with doctrine. That's what we are called to do. It's why we are here. If we were saved for eternity, we've been left here to do His bidding. We're called to teach not only the Word of God, but impart our very lives. That's the very essence of what it means to be the church, not to attend church. So if, if we looked at our covenant last week, this week we're going to look at our mission statement and really the theme verse that embodies it. Let me read you our, our mission statement. Metro Bible Church exists to reflect God's glory by bringing people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and helping them to become like Him. I think everyone would agree with that. Almost every church, every denomination. Now here's the difference. We seek to do this by imparting the Word and imparting our lives. The argument I'm going to make here today, which I think is thoroughly biblical, is that the Great Commission to which we are all called to be obedient to, the very mission of our lives, must be accomplished as Scripture dictates. And the closest parallel we have is parenting, imparting the Word and imparting our lives. And when we do it that way, guess what? People come to know Jesus Christ, and people grow to be like Him. And if you're imbalanced, you're not accomplishing that which we've been left here to do. So it's pretty simple. Two points today. Imparting the Word, imparting our lives. For many of you, this is going to be a review. I don't think I've preached on this for nearly a decade, seven or eight years. But for a lot of us, it's going to be new. Either way, I hope it is fresh. I hope it is something that we can not only understand and embrace, but something we can really, really get excited about. Something that we can take our focus on whatever it's been on and put it on this, and as we learned this morning in Equipping Hour, to find great joy in doing it. To find great joy in partnering with one another in their spiritual growth. So imparting the Word, imparting our lives. You know, old Prof. Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, he taught there for 50 years. Everyone's favorite professor, he taught hermeneutics, Bible study methods. And he used to say this to his class quite often. There are only two things God is going to take off this world. 
His Word, and His people. You ever think about that? It's all going to burn, right? We all die. Things rot. But there's two things God is going to take off this word, world. His Word and His people. And if that is true, and I believe that it is, the most significant thing you can do in life is pour His Word into His people in relationship. Amen? All right. Let's look at what it means to have a culture of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Imparting the Word. Well, in verses 1 through 6, Paul shows us four ways in which we impart the Word. It's very important here. This is why, you know, I'm not against tracts at all, but one reason we don't stand out and just hand out tracts is that we're not really accomplishing that to which we are called, the mission to which we are called. I don't want people to just read something, although the Lord has saved people that way. I want them to hear it from me, the very Word of God. I want them to know how my life has been changed. I don't want them to just repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. I want them to be part of a growing body of believers. For justification, when we get saved, is simply the beginning of a lifelong journey of growing in Christ and serving Him and being together with one another. And so in verses 1 through 6, we see four ways. Look at the second part of verse 2. Paul's very transparent here. you, You can tell he knows this congregation. He says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Number one, we must proclaim the gospel with boldness. Our first understanding of how we impart the Word of God, and if you're a Christian, you will be imparting the Word of God. Well, how? What what, what do you mean? Do I just text someone some verses? Be encouraged? Okay. Or is there something here? Is there there a, a model, a model of spiritual parenting as to how Paul imparts the Word of God. It says he does it here with boldness, amid much opposition. Remember where he came from. So he arrived in Thessalonica from Philippi, and remember he had taken a beating there. His socks were put in stocks. He had had his back beaten with rods. He had been uh, incarcerated, and all of it was done illegally. Remember, he was a card-carrying Roman citizen. You could not be beaten without trial, and yet he had been done wrong. He was exhausted. He was sore, and I would imagine depressed. But the text says otherwise. It says he, he was undaunted, and he spoke with boldness, confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was amid much opposition that, that, that word opposition is an athletic term. Uh, it means to struggle. It's, it's the word agon. It's where we get our word agony. He says, I arrived in Thessalonica, and I shared with you the life-saving truth of the gospel. And remember the context. I was tired. I was sore. Maybe his, 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 his back was still healing from, from being striped. 
His ankles were, were, were worn, raw. And yet there was life. I'm thinking of the song we sang. It's life in our veins. And he shared with them the truth. And he did it unashamedly. Now that makes for a good movie, right? That makes for good reading. But if I start to imagine myself in his sandals, I don't know that I would have been so bold in the next town. Yeah, I'd look at Silas and say, you know, that didn't go so well. Um, I'll tell you what, why don't I get up, tell lots more stories this time, kind of just sneak the truth in there a little bit, tell everyone they're doing well, but this is, this is something where they can have a higher life. Um, they can have more significance. You know, maybe we just do it that way. I don't think I would have been bold. Now, I don't think it's because of, of Paul's personality that he was bold. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. I know he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he was able to do that which was contrary. Not only contrary to his own flesh, but contrary to the culture. When it says he spoke the truth with boldness, what that means is he spoke the truth of God, which was contrary to the wisdom of the culture. Remember, Thessalonica is not the buckle of the Bible belt. It is a pagan cosmopolitan city. Do we have a tendency to trim our sails a little bit do we have a tendency not to speak the truth with boldness because it's countercultural? I mean, think about the switch that has really happened. Uh, that which the Bible considers good, the culture, culture now considers bad. And, and now the, the, the culture considers good things bad things. It's upside down. And so to, to talk about issues of following Christ and holiness in basically what was the ancient Las Vegas, this is tough. He took them to the cross. He talked to them about how they had offended a holy God and how their sin had earned them a paycheck of death. And there was no hope but God being rich in His mercy. He loved them so much that He sent His only Son. He took them to the cross. And then after many believed, He taught them what the Bible says about holiness, sexuality. He basically said, hey, it's okay not to be okay. The Lord, you don't get your life in order before you come to Christ. But it's not okay to stay that way. That once you come to Christ, you must grow in holiness. You must learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And so he called them to leave behind their former life. You say, well, Rod, are you reading into this? Not at all. Read the book of 1 Thessalonians. They gave these people the truth in a city that was dominated by satanic activity. In 2010, 
Between two apartment complexes, archaeologists found the temple of Aphrodite in modern-day Thessalonica. And if you know anything about your Roman history, you know Aphrodite was the goddess of... Yeah, that kind of stuff. To worship, even as a married man, to worship, I would go and I would engage with temple prostitutes. That would be my worship. These are the people that are coming out of paganism into Christianity. If the kids wanted to celebrate their birthday, do you know where you did it? At the temple. And yet Paul is calling them to turn from their sin and follow Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, literally. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And we're called to impart the word in the same way. Anyone, anyone who walks through that door, believer, unbeliever, no matter what situation they're in, we're going to love on them deeply. We're going to open our homes to them. We're going to get to know them. But guess what? We are going to proclaim the life-saving gospel boldly as the only means of salvation. And then when they become a believer, we're going to call them to holiness. And if they're living with their girlfriend, we're going to call them to turn from that sin, repent, and follow Christ. If they're coming out of homosexuality, we're going to say, kill, mortify that sin. Turn from lust. Things have not changed in 2,000 years. Paul says, don't soft-sell the Word of God. We're going to love people deeply by giving them the truth. We're going to proclaim it boldly. Number two, we're going to exhort it correctly. Look at verse three. For our exhortation does not come from error. That means it cannot be my preferences nor yours, that we must cut it straight. Exhortation is the word parakaleo, alongside speaking. That means we, all of us, are going to build relationships alongside them and speak the truth of God's word. And as 2 Tim 2.15 says, we're going to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as a workman who accurately handles the word of truth. And you say, well, what do you mean accurately handling the word of truth? That means we're going to preach a gospel that talks about the depravity of man, that talks rightly about the person and work of Jesus Christ about substitutionary atonement. We're not going to shy away from those as though they're deep doctrines. Anything that has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ or our estate in need of a Savior, we're going to be very clear about that, both at calling them to Christ and as we walk with them. So we're going to proclaim it boldly. Like Paul, we're going to exhort it correctly. Number three, we're going to explain it sincerely. This is not about delivering a message to sort of get it off our chest, right? As we learn to spiritually parent, we must do it in sincerity. We must do it in, in such a way that, that we really want people to understand and know the Word of God. Not that we just want to say, ah, 
I told them what they were supposed to know. Yep, I took him through this book. Paul says, no. Do it because you love them. Do it because it was done for you. Paul says, I'm not like the other teachers. He says, it's not, our exhortation does not come by way of impurity. There's, there's, a, there's a, a double meaning there. It, it seems to have the, the connotation of impurity. Meaning Paul was being accused of being like all the other teachers. In fact, he even says that. You're like all the others. And teachers during that time made a living. They were like coffee shop poets. They would get paid to tell wonderful stories. They were called sophists, wise speakers. And many had such egos and a licentious lifestyle that they would have sort of a girl in every port. And Paul was being accused of doing this for ulterior motives, either for, for, for money or for pleasure. And he says, no. When I came from Philippi and I got to know you guys, I shared with you the Word of God because I love you. I shared it with you sincerely. I care. I didn't do it, it says, by way of deceit. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a, a bait and switch. I did it, number four, to glorify God only. And I tell you, if, if, if we can get that part down, watch this, even, even our nervousness will go away. Because you know that if you start sharing the Word of God with some people, especially maybe family or friends, you're going to take a beating. You're, you're going to be mocked. You're going to be shot down. You're going to be thought of as little. But when you're in it to glorify God only, then guess what? You've got an audience of one. You've got one guy to please. And if you're proclaiming it boldly, you're exhorting it correctly, and you're sincere about it, then glorifying God only will be the result. And that fourth one really covers all of it. Watch how he glorifies God and not self in, in uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4. Just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that means he's a steward, okay, picture there, so we speak not as pleasing men, but as God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, though as apostles of Christ we might have exerted our authority. He says there are no ulterior motives that I am compelled by God's glory to share with you, to impart the Word of God. These aren't my own ideas. I like the picture of, of, uh, of a mailman. He's simply delivering the royal mail, the, the, the letters from the king. He's like, I'm not writing these letters. I'm delivering them to you. And, and, and they're just as it's been written because I care for you. And this is what brings God glory. Paul was not trying to please the crowds even though he was accused of it. In 2 Corinthians, people mock him. They say, well, you know, his, his letters are weighty, <clears throat> but his presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. 
He's not that good of a preacher. Letters are impressive, but he's not that good of a preacher. He's just, he's just trying. He's doing this for the wrong reasons. He says, no. No, I got one message. Paul was a one-trick pony, if you think about it. He was a one-trick pony. I'm here to deliver the mail for the king. So how do we do the same? Well, again, we talked about this morning, this sort of antithetically. What does it mean to glorify God only in imparting the word? Sometimes it helps me to understand what it looks like for me to glorify myself. If I'm glorifying myself, then I'm, then I'm worried about what you think. I have a fear of man. Or if I'm glorifying myself, um, maybe I'm doing it because I want to be thought of highly. You know, I want to be thought of as a good teacher. I want to be liked. I want people to think I'm smart. Paul says no. You deliver the message. Just like in 2 Timothy, in season and out of season. Cut it straight. Be bold about it. The king's given you a message. I used this, uh, this illustration a while back. Can you imagine if you had an ambassador that opened up the letter of what he was to deliver for the king and said, you know what, this is not going to fly. This, <clears throat> this king is just, his delivery is just all off. Now, I'm going I'm to kind of take that part out there and I'm going to rephrase this and I'm going to soften it this way. What would the king do when he found out his ambassador had done that? He would say, you're in it for yourself. That's not your job. Your job is to impart the word of God because unless you impart the word correctly, the word of the king correctly, then the message is not delivered rightly. And how much more in this case when only the correct message saves? That's the key. Now, just in case you're thinking of writing it off a little bit and say, well, yeah, but that's why I go to a, an expositional preaching church because the pastor imparts the Word of God. Check. i I'm, I'm, I'm kind of got it covered there. And maybe I talk about it a little bit in small groups. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm done. I don't really need to, to do any more Great Commission work than that. Let me tell you what my friend Jonathan Lehman says. He says, the ministry of the Word does indeed begin in the pulpit, but then it must continue through the life of the church as members echo God's word back and forth to one another. It may start in the pew, but it reverberates, I mean, in the pulpit, but it reverberates in the pew. And then when we go out of here, it's sharing the truth with one another. But then this brings up the question, is that all it takes to parent consistently? To parent effectively? I've, uh, I've been imparted the correct information in the correct way. That's good spiritual parenting. Of course not. So we have to impart our lives. Look at our second point. Verse 7, but we prove to be gentle. And then look at that modifier there. 
as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. What a picture. What a picture. Gentle like a nursing mother. Mothers give their babies the most healthy thing imaginable, breast milk. With all of the vitamins and antibodies, the thing which produces the greatest growth and the greatest resistance to infection, it's full prescription strength. Formulas don't, don't, don't uh, add up at all. There's nothing else that is better. And yet, how does, how does that baby get it? Gently, tenderly. The word literally means with warmth. A nursing mother not only nourishes her child, but she also cherishes him. She not only is willing to protect and die for her child, but it is by her very life that he or she lives. Have you ever thought about that? Mothers impart their very lives. And look how they do it. Verse 7, they are among you. You cannot do it from a distance, can you? Paul is making the connection that he spiritually parented those in Thessalonica. And he knew them by name, by relationship. The Philippian jailer, his family, the, the young girl that was the, a demoniac, Lydia, friends. And he was like a nursing mother in that he knew them because he was among them. Shepherds do not care from their sheep from a helicopter, do they? Or simply by texting, though it may be part of it, they are among the flock. They touch the flock at least twice daily. Many, many years ago, I, I had an elder that was not doing his job, and I thought, I'm going to approach him with something that he cannot deny, that he has to agree with. I said, don't you think it's important that you're among the sheep? And he looked at me and he said, no, I don't. How, 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 can, you be, how can you be a shepherd? You have to be among the sheep. And so it is true, not just with your under-shepherds, your elders, but with all of us. You've heard me say it recently. This is why I'm glad we've had some live streaming. I'm glad we've got our little mixer where if you're sick, you can hear it. But you are not worshiping with us online. I'm just going to keep beating that dead horse. And that came true today with a friend of mine overseas who was told to cease and desist by the police not to worship because of COVID restrictions. And he said, it occurred to me that in fact, those who have been worshiping with us online are not actually worshiping with us because we have to be together. Because we cannot impart our lives unless we are. It is not merely enough to impart the Word of God. I can hear sermons. You can hear sermons and watch sermons that are a lot better than your pastors online. But they're not your pastor and they're not going to give an account for you before God one day, Hebrews 13, 17. And so like Micah says, like people like priests, 
You should look at your elders as models and say, hey, if they're doing great commission work by imparting the word and imparting their lives to us, what does it look like for me to do the same? Well, I must be among the body, in relationship, being transparent, tenderly caring for one another. Frankly, we all need to smell like sheep. Can we say that? Smell like sheep because we are sheep and we're around one another. And that lanolin is is rubbing off on the rest of us. And you you kind of become like a, a giant Velcro pad. It's okay. God loves his flock and he wants us together. My job then is to train more and more shepherds, more and more small group leaders. And it is important that they are to impart the word correctly. I ask them lots of questions. I train them. It's important that they are theologically qualified. But I'll tell you, right after I'm sure that they know their catechism, right after I'm sure that they've read their Grudem systematic theology, guess what I'm going to find out is absolutely essential? Are you relationally qualified? Translation, do you love the body? Of course, no one says no. No, I hate the body. But I will ask them, then why aren't you among them? Why aren't you here? Why isn't your home open? Why aren't you giving of your stuff? It is absolutely essential. I don't care if a PhD walks through this door and he just won the preaching award at seminary. If he's not willing to have people in his home, if he's not willing to come early and stay late, if he's not willing to die to self and love other people, I don't even know that I want him stacking chairs, much less putting him in the pulpit. That's how serious... Paul takes discipleship. You cannot impart the word if you're not willing to impart your life. And the reason is given in verse 8, having so fond an affection for you. And it's like Paul just, it's like he just opens up his his shirt and exposes his, his chest, his heart having so fond an affection for you. This is a very, very interesting phrase. It it means to connect oneself with another. And again, archaeology gives us a clue about this. They found this phrase inscribed on tombs where parents lost their children at a very young age. And it's the longing of a parent to be with that child who has died having so fond an affection for you. My heart was so connected to my child that it hurts now that we're apart. And he says, because I have this connectedness, then we were well pleased to impart not only the gospel. You know you're going to get that from me, and it's absolutely essential, but also our own, the word is, our own souls. Paul's soul was knit with the Thessalonian church. That's spiritual parenting. 
And so I, I think about my anemic definitions of, of, of discipleship before. You know, some say discipleship is grabbing coffee with another believer. And while this is important, apart from the Word of God, it, it, it's not discipleship, it's, it's friendship. And that's, that's a good thing, but that's, it's not discipleship. Others say it's, it, it's, it's simply instructing someone from the Bible. Well, I, I'm just a good teacher, I'm not really a touchy-feely guy. Well, that too is an essential part, but that's not discipleship, that's, that's education. And you can pay for a class and get that. You don't need it from me or anyone else. Now, what you need is imparting the Word wrapped in relationship and imparting our lives. And in case you think that spiritual parenting is only like a mother, look down at verse 11, and Paul gives us a picture of a father. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Because you were so dear to us. Metro, that's... that's who we are. Let me state that again. I'm not saying that's who we are because we've accomplished it. I'm saying we, if you're a believer, you are a disciple of Christ, follower of Christ, a learner of Christ. And who better imparted the Word and His life to others? And He has called us to do the same. And if you are a Christian, just like Prior to the church in Antioch, you're a disciple. It's who you are. And disciples make disciples. Do you realize that? It doesn't end with a disciple. We need to come up with another name. But it does not end with a disciple. Disciples are children that one day become parents. And guess what? Parents will one day become grandparents, won't they? We are called to spiritually rear others, to spiritually birth others. We want this place full of the cry of newborn babes. Amen? Full of the cry of people who have come out of Thessalonica, of paganism, who have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because you shared the Word of God with them wrapped in relationship. Because you not only told them about Jesus Christ, but you opened up your home, you walked with them, you met with them, you pleaded for their souls until they said, I don't want to hear any more. Or they say, I must become a disciple of Christ. Amen? And then guess what? You bring them in here and we walk with them and you disciple them and you rear them and one day they start to birth spiritual babies too. And they do the same. This is what we are called to be. This is not something I've come up with. This is not some sort of special program. Jesus Christ has no plan B for building His kingdom. This is it. If you are a Christian, 
You are a disciple. You are a spiritual parent. Jesus says, act like one. <laughs>